reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. Hi, this is Zach Galifianakis. You're listening to Cool Jazz Favorites. Hi, this is Zach Galifianakis. You're listening to Easy Listening Jazz Favorites. On K- Hi, this is Zach Galifianakis. You're listening to KUCI Irvine 88.9. KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Thanks for listening to Our Digital Future. Every Thursday morning at 8.30 a.m., we like to talk about the digital digital future of our information spaces. And today we've got Tom Fine from the Association for Recorded Sound Collections, which was founded in 1966. He's calling in from New York today, and we're going to talk with him about the dawn of digital recording and everything he does over there this morning. Thanks for calling in live. Hi, Zeba. Nice to be here. Very nice to have you. I've uh, noticed you very actively participating in uh, the listserv I follow, the Association for Recorded Sound Collections. So what's your passion that got you into what you're doing now? How did you get to where you are today to be so active in the discussion? Um, Please tell us your education and career history. We're broadcasting from the University of California, Irvine, with lots of undergrads here that might want to follow your path. I know a lot of people here have a a similar passion. Great. yeah, Ziba. First, I, I should say that uh, I don't represent ARSC, um, no. so I'm I'm just uh, I'm just speaking as as a member. Yes. Of ARSC, but uh, yeah, I do participate in the ARSC list uh, email discussions quite a bit. Um, I have uh, a side business as, as a transfer person doing um, analog to digital audio transfers, um, and uh, I'm very interested in in the history of uh, sound recording and. Um, the, you know the recording business and the transfer work actually got me more interested in the, the private collections and you know the university sound archives world um, you know I, I guess I never thought about it as a person growing up and listening to uh, you know mostly commercial recordings and you know making a few amateur recordings myself here and there and you know plenty of mixtapes and such in the 80s I don't know if, if you or your colleagues uh, remember mixtapes Oh, yes. I myself made some mixtapes in my middle school listening to the radio uh, Dr. Demento shows. I was very into his comedy spoof um, sh- music shows that he would play. Oh, yeah. Yep. That's, that's awesome. So, so you're, uh, you're old enough to remember cassettes then? Oh, yes. I would actually make them just for fun and putting my favorite songs together for my friends to hear. I would just hand them out to my friends at, in middle school and say, here's some really funny stuff you're not going to hear. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah, so, you know, beyond that, there's also this whole world that uh, these university archives and, and, you know, private sound collectors and such have, have made over the years. There, there's just so much sound recording out there, and... Uh, one of the big challenges in the world right now is getting getting the decaying analog media into digital in a high enough quality 
and having a preservation strategy so that um, as the analog media becomes unplayable, the, the sound survives. That's very interesting. There's um, a new position I saw available. It's called the Sound Archive Librarian at Stanford. And I'm yeah. wondering, so positions like that are all over universities. Yeah, it, it's a growing field. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's perfect for the, the generation that's now in college because, um, you know, you all were born digital, sort of. And uh, so, you're, you know, the, you get... You get guys like me in our 40s, and, you know, we it was an adjustment to be comfortable working on a computer workstation with audio because we started out with, you know, all analog equipment and, you know, mixing consoles and tape machines and this sort of thing. And, um, you know, the, the younger kids, they, they may have seen these things, they may have played with these things, but they probably started out with GarageBand and, you know, moved up to Pro Tools, something like that. And uh, so they're... They're very um, trained to, to use the digital media. And uh, then also that with the computer skills that they've been taught since, you know, kindergarten or earlier, they can uh, do the, the management of the digital libraries, which is going to be the big issue going forward is once you get this stuff digitized, how do you make sure that you keep your format non-obsolete? Because the, the one thing about digital um, various formats is they have a history of becoming obsolete and then the equipment is only manufactured for a certain amount of time and then it becomes very hard to retrieve the bits and the bytes. Yeah, and you probably mentioned this in your article, Dawn of Digital Recording. Um, when did you write that one? Yeah, um, so that goes back to 2008 and um, I wrote it for the ARSC Journal because uh, I thought that, you know, there was, there was a, not really... A clear history of just you know how how this all started digital audio recording actually um well the basic technology goes goes back to before world war ii um in the tele telephony um the idea of pulse code modulation which is you know the basis for compact discs for um basic basically all um digital playback formats today except for um direct stream digital which is SACD and that can be you know cross-coded to PCM and back um, so that goes back that technology goes goes back to the, the 30s actually and the in the 60s the, the Japanese um, broadcasting network in HK came up with a monophonic digital recorder that um, used a uh, videotape recorder as its storage medium and that kind of became the Japanese um, MO with with digital recording up up into the 90s because you know basically up until the the mid 90s most CD masters were made on uh, um, essentially umatic videotape recorders. It was um, called um, the Sony 1600 and then 1630 and then 1700 mastering systems, which were pretty standard for mastering CDs. And then we have, yeah, the, so we have the CDs, the audio cassette, and the vinyl. And what is the most analog you deal with daily to that you have to transfer digitally? Oh, um, it's it's overwhelmingly been tapes, but I do do um, groove discs. I did I do co um, for private collectors. Um, you know, basically, 
if if something is not in print on commercial CD, uh, it's it's their fair use to have a dub of it, and uh, so you know what. I will I will do that for them, but you know I won't do that for you know commercial release unless you know it's it's from the copyright owner and you know we have an you know there there's proof of being legal with the copyrights. But for someone who has a collection of LPs and they want to put them in their iPod, it's fair use to dub that to digital. Oh yeah, there's so many um, copyright issues now with the there's copyright lawyers and everyone needs to think about. The audio recordings yeah. and what they're doing with them publicly is. Yes, it's yes, definitely yes. All, all you kids who do sampling, yes, be careful. Um, note that you couldn't. Well, note the lesson of Della Soul. There was a good documentary about this. I for, I forget the title, but um, basically, um, Della Soul was a hot group in the '90s, and then they made the mistake of of um, sampling and mocking without permission, um, a, a former, you know, a hit from the 70s by a guy named Gilbert O'Sullivan. And he sued big time. And they basically, their their career was shot. They lost all, <clears throat> all the rights to that hit. Oh, wow. And they were dropped by their record company, I believe. Yeah, it's um, hard to know. Yeah, and, you know, there there's, um, well, the Beastie Boys' great album, Paul's Boutique, couldn't make it today. Hmm. Because the laws have been tightened up about you know what what you can say. Well, you that you could if you had a lawyer go and track down permission for every, every sample, which the Beastie Boys later you know half the inner sleeve on the album would be uh, all the credits for the sampling. And there's a lot of fees if you want to use other people's sounds. I think also with uh, film soundtracks and TV spots, it's just sound costs a lot. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it does, and um, you know, part of part of what uh, Arsk has been advocating for um, is is reforming the U.S. copyright laws because basically the way copyrights are set up now, it's all it's almost in perpetuity, which just was not the intent of of patents or copyrights. You know. Yeah, the Sound Archive is a great business. I know. We've been playing here uh, old-time radio shows from the 40s and 50s on our radio station. And just to hear back then how much there was audio, more than today, it was like art. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. The old radio, um, well, you know, an interesting thing is that uh, most most things that are revered in, in, the rec- in the record business, like in recorded music, most of the engineering techniques were pioneered either in Hollywood or in broadcasting. And some of, some of the best audio engineers in, you know, throughout history have been in those fields. Well, yeah, ho- Hollywood, when they went from silence to, you know, audio, that was a big part of it, I think, in the classical Hollywood coming up with the sound. Oh yeah, yeah, and, and also um, I, I have a friend who his name's Robert Harris. He's a film res- restoration um, person. He restored um, Lawrence of Arabia, Rear Window, bunch bunch of these um, you know high profile restorations, and uh, most recently he restored the Godfather trilogy for Blu-ray, and uh, that was kind of neat to watch because it, it was you know they literally would go frame by frame, do a high resolution scan. Then they then they'd run, you know, uh, 
some, some fancier version of Photoshop to clean it up. And then um, Bob and his assistant would literally go frame by frame and make notes of further things that needed to be cleaned up by hand. And then he would do things like find original sound elements so you could remix the soundtracks. Because um, sometimes all you'll have with these films will be, um, you know, an optical print of, of the monophonic soundtrack. But then if you go and look in the vaults, you'll find the elements, and you can go back and remix it for surround sound or stereo or whatever. Oh, wow. But what I was, what I was getting at is Bob told me that basically the whole idea of multi-track and, you know, mixing um, different sound sources together, that, go, that goes back, well, it actually goes back to that there, there were multi-horn setups, um, in some of the acoustic recording studios but as far as you know an electric mixer of mixing different sound sources almost as soon as they had optical recording channels in hollywood they were figuring out that you know there should be an optical film of the music an optical film of the dialogue and an optical film of the sound effects and that they should be mixed together to get a master soundtrack that's a lot of work to get an hour and a half worth 90 minutes oh, yeah. of sound. Oh, yeah, yeah. Up to date and even just mixing. Um, I know a lot of f- films, there's like a sound person that specifically, I know we learned about how um, in The Exorcist, the sound for the, the screaming of the exorcism was from uh, recorded um, bees and bears and lions and different animals they went out on site and got and mixed it together to get one demonic roar yes and um actually my father's in the credits for the exorcist he was a sound mixer and he he came up with the effect for the devil's voice wow that's amazing yeah and you know what that was was he fed he fed the sound the voiceover into a timpani drum and then put an acoustic coupling coupling device on the drum head and mix that with the original signal and that's how you get that you know that eerie booming and echoing sound around the devil's voice wow and and funny funny coincidence um my younger brother worked for a while in the video um post-production business so one of the places he worked the machine room this was back in the 90s when they still had, you know, a machine room full of videotape machines. Um, one of the guys there had worked at at Reeves um, uh, Cinetel, which which was the studio where my father did that at, and he actually had that acoustic coupling device that had been machined to fit inside the timpani, and he gave it to my younger brother. Oh wow! So it runs in the family, the sound archive and. Mixing. Yeah, um, my my dad was a professional recording engineer, Bob Fine, and uh, my mother, Wilma Cozart Fine, was a uh, record producer for Mercury Records, and they they made um, a series of classical recordings in the fifties and sixties called Mercury Living Presence. That uh, it, it's it's quite well known. It's you know that it's still in print. There was just a fifty CD um, box set reissue done last year by the current owner, Universal Music Group, and actually there's going to be another 50 CD box set um, done next year. Wow, I might have some of those in my vinyl collection. I always go through and grab whatever I can find at the Amoeba Records or Fingerprints Records. I just enjoy 
collecting vinyl and spinning it live for event art shows events and even on the air here at the radio but how was that growing up in such a musical family with the vinyl and everything oh yeah well but what one thing that i remember is my parents uh in their in my mother's um office the the whole wall one of the walls was record shelves because what they had bought the house before i was born um when she was still working in the record business and uh so between you know she kept copies of everything that she had a hand in and my dad was pretty good about it so they you know by the time they were out of the record business the wall was uh, pretty full of records that's amazing and i even um i follow the arcs list and i see that you guys even differentiate the um colored vinyl versus clear vinyl oh yeah and yeah, the that's sound the- that's a discussion, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know all the detail. I just, it's so fascinating, you know, being, um, you know, on the college radio for 12 years and now learning about the difference in, uh, the was it the sound quality because of the powder mixture of the colored vinyl? Oh, yeah. Yeah, There. well, there was, um, they used to do picture discs in the 80s. Remember, did you, have you ever collected any of those? With the photos on the discs? Yes, yeah. So that kind of stuff, to do that, um, usually the, the um, that's more about the picture than the quality of the vinyl. So sometimes those play really rough. Sometimes they don't. But uh, there's, there's you know, all kinds of strange talk in the, in the audiophile world about, oh, you know, the black vinyl has magnetic properties and this and that. But, you know, I've never seen any science where... They've shown that there's any magnetic properties to, to vinyl that are strong enough to affect how a cartridge works, you know, how a magnetic cartridge works. Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Have you ever had a podcast or a radio show for... No, this is actually the first time I've been live on the air anywhere. Oh, how was how it uh, growing up in New York with the radio around there? Is that where you grew up? Yeah, yeah, and you know, when when I was a kid back in the um, late 70s and early 80s, the FM radio was pretty good, and I actually, my musical um, horizons, between my oldest brother um, going away to college, and get, he had a radio show at WPRB Princeton, and mm-hmm. so he used to send me air tapes on cassettes, and that opened up a lot of music to me, and then uh, um, the WNEW-FM was kind of a new wave progressive station back then, and so that opened up a lot of music to me. WPLJ was the straight-ahead hits, and they, they were famous because they had the super-compressed signal, and it, and like the, they cranked up the bass, and uh, you know it was Stairway to Heaven every hour on the hour. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when, uh, when, when I was in high school, I think... I just noticed that, actually, I was just scanning. I usually don't listen to the radio today because it's terrible. It's mostly, mm-hmm. you know, the same old clear channel formats everywhere. Mm-hmm. But uh, I was just scanning the dial when I was driving yesterday, and I noticed Q104 is still on the air. And uh, they started out when I was in high school, I think between junior and senior year. It might have been between senior year and college. And I do remember them because the whole summer was commercial-free. Oh, wow. Yeah, and that was like a whole summer of commercial-free good rock and roll back then. 
Oh, yeah, it's out there worldwide. There's college radio, non-commercial, non-mainstream. I know、um, it's streaming live if it's not in the local dial for the, the car radio to catch. There's always,、um, through iTunes, we actually found KUCI under college radio streaming live. Oh, cool. Yeah, that's, the streaming is really neat because it does open up a lot of different stuff. I have a, a Logitech squeeze box. Um, thing at home that's that's a、uh, little it basically takes digital audio from your computer network or from the internet and puts it into your stereo system、mm. and you can it one of its strengths is how it how it does streaming radio it finds radio stations all over you know you can basically have it locate a radio station and pick up the stream and put it out into your stereo and it's awesome oh wow so interesting yeah when i When I travel, I always look for where's the non mainstream college radio station. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah, they're still out there. Actually, there's probably going to be more and more of them just because, you know, the, the vanilla format has kind of devalued FM.、Mm-hmm. So, you know, I notice, I notice that some of these chains have deleveraged, some, you know, sold some of their stations. And,、um, you know, I don't know about major markets, but I think out in the hinterlands, You know, they, there was a push for community radio a few years ago, but unfortunately, NPR joined up with the clear channels of the world and just、mm-hmm. squashed it. And I, I had a lot of hopes for that because I thought that would be pretty cool that, you know, any high school or any community group could have, you know, a,、um, just a few watts of signal in, between the band, in the in between bands、oh, just、yeah. for local areas. That, I think that that was the whole intent of broadcasting in the early days. Yeah. That would be awesome. And then, if not, you could st- start up something in their basement like pirate radio. Yeah, yeah. Well, now, I don't want to. I'm、oh, not going to、no. advocate piracy, but <laughs> no. I understand. No, those are some good films. I saw the one of the. I forget what it was called, but a British one on a boat. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's famous. I, I forget the.、Um, there were a couple of those, but one of those boats was really famous, and it went for years. The other one was the guy that built the pirate radio station on the. One of those old、um, forts off the British coast that were、mm-hmm. built as early war. They, I think they were anti aircraft installations during World War II. And they're these, these、uh, big iron structures out in the middle of the North Sea. And、uh, some guy basically declared a republic there and set up a war,、uh, pirate radio station, if I recall the story correctly. Yeah, it's hard with the FCC guidelines and everything to get. I think everything you need set up. So I know there's a lot of stations in,、uh, across the border in Mexico. Yeah, and that's a famous tradition in the history of broadcasting.、Um, one, of the, one of the most famous ones.、Uh, are you familiar with the story of the guy who. He was, he was like a quack cure guy who, who would、um, transplant goat glands into people? Oh, no. Um, I forget his name. Oh, man. If, if anyone else from ARSC is listening, they're probably screaming. Because、uh-huh. those old guys know all this stuff off the tip of their tongue. But、um, basically, the, the guy was a, a quack, and he got. I, I think. Let me look here. I'm just, I'm just Googling goat gland radio. <laughs> wow. Let me see what we get. Oh, yeah, John R. Brinkley. So this guy, John R. Brinkley, came up with these.、Um, This idea to transplant goat glands into people to, to revive their vitality. And he basically got、um, 
thrown thrown into uh, disrepute, and he set up a, a giant border radio station in Mexico. Huh. And uh, that that was one of the first that they called them border blasters back yeah. then. Yeah. Yeah, and so Mexico granted him a fifty thousand watt radio license, and X XER FM was his was his station and there were other ones so the whole history of border blasters is really funny oh yeah we learned that we had some classes in our, our film and media batches here at uc irvine we had some um, dedicated to the history of radio and even how um the am fm and everything started and that's a whole that's a sad um story i think the wasn't it the guy that created um fm but didn't get the, uh, the support for creating it. I think he ended up jumping off the tower. Yeah, do- yeah, Doctor Armstrong. Um, yeah, that's uh, that. That's an interesting story. Um, I mean, he he would. Yeah, I don't even want to step into that history. But yeah, basically, he did end up committing suicide, and it's it's very sad. There was there was um, an anniversary broadcast on his original frequency few years ago i have the mp3 of it i just i don't remember the the details but it was interesting they talked to some of his former co-workers and such that that antenna that he built in new jersey is still standing i believe wow it's great to look into the history of sound and and it's great what you're doing with the sound archives and transferring um, analog to digital out there in new york that's a, it seems like a, is that a great business these days? It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's all right. You know, it's like all things in the recording business. It's, it's, uh, it's tough to make it a main career. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, there's demand for it. And, you know, what, what I always like to emphasize to clients is that uh, if you, you know, if you're a university or an archive or something and you have a bunch of these old tapes or old discs or something like that, you know, it's it's quite expensive to ramp up to become a specialist in analog playback. And my my argument is that it's it's much more cost effective to outsource the transfer work unless you're already equipped to do it. And then you concentrate on the, the digital archive itself that you get back. You know, how do you want to do your metadata? How do you want to do your interfacing with it? You know, what formats are you going to have it available in who's it going to be available to what's going to be on the web what's your web interface etc etc that's you know that's much more in the realm of a modern librarian or archivist Mm -hmm. whereas playback of ancient analog media is, is probably not in the job description or the education of most of those people and maintaining old analog machines is definitely not probably oh yeah you know, there's a trick to all that. You know, you can't just put a tape on a machine and play it. You have to, you have to assess it. You know, you have to understand all the, f- the different track layouts and formats. You have to understand about setting azimuth. You have to understand about playback equalization. You know, you have to do a little bit of detective work before you ever consider playing the thing. Then you have to assess it physically and make sure playing it's not going to ruin it. Oh, yeah, because I've had many times where my uh, audio cassette... Uh, magnetic strip or tape it just uh, breaks yeah and then there goes that and you try to tape it together and yeah cassettes uh, they they get they have problems the the cheaper ones especially from hot weather and stuff the uh, the pads 
that the tape inside the case, either the case gets distorted, the plastic literally melts or distorts, or the, the pads that the tape is rolling on inside, the Teflon pads wear out, or the tape itself gets so it won't feed correctly, it's cupped or, you know, um, binded or something. Yeah, growing up I got a, a tape from my mother in Mexico of the Beatles that right. she had just um, made homemade and I would listen to that as in, in kindergarten but and then that was just amazing that there's this audio cassette tape from the 70s I think she just had and it, it wouldn't really last very well to play today that's a shame I think the dust and everything yeah the heat sometimes though it. the old ones hold up there was a period um, cert- certain brands from from the 80s and and I think the early 90s. Another thing that happened is, um, remember in the late in the cassette era, they made like, you know, C100s and C120s became more common again because of uh, CD length, of dubbing CDs. You know, a C90 wouldn't do it for two CDs. Oh, yeah. So you get like a C100 or a C120. Mm -hmm. Those thin tapes just don't hold up well. Over time, there's too much tape in the shell, and the tape is too thin. Oh, yeah. And I'm, I remember there were 120s for, for, like, recording lectures and stuff in the 70s, and then they kind of went out of favor, and then they came back late in the era. I'll tell you, though, you know what? Uh, Maxell UDXL2, I'll give a shout-out to them. I had, that, that was always what I used, and I still have tapes from, you know, 1977, 78 that I can put in and play, and they play great. Oh, Yeah. That's why everybody, I, I think, should have an audio cassette player, you know, vinyl record player, all kinds of different audio and compare the sound. Not just, I mean, most people, maybe they just have the iPod touch or something that these days. Right. But right. if you're well, into... You know, it's true. Yeah, you know, a, a young person today, um, if, if they've just bought all their music on iTunes, right, they probably don't even understand that the quality has been compromised by the lossy format. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they should at least compare it to a CD playback and see if they can hear what's been compromised. And then it's always always educational to dub the, the same song to a cassette and hear what a cassette does. Oh, yeah. Because a cassette also very much compromises the sound, but in a very different way from a lossy digital format. It's very ex- exciting for uh, I think the people growing up to to see the possibilities. I think that's what I was fascinated with vinyl growing up. It wasn't something you know I was grown up with. It was something I looked into when I became older. Right, right. So it was it was probably um, it yes it was probably a uh, um, you you were probably kind of an outlier right with kids your age having the vinyl. Oh, yeah. Yeah, growing up, there wasn't something many had. I had to look for an old record player yeah. to purchase even to play anything. Well, you were just on the forefront of a trend, that's all. Yeah. <laughs> now it's all about the vinyl collection. Yeah. There's a record store day I participated in, waiting in line, trying to get the limited releases. Yeah, yep, yep. I've been doing that. I, there's a place I like uh, near my home. Uh, it's at Jerosa's over in Connecticut. Um, they usually get good record store day um, loot. I probably shouldn't mention it because I, I will. Well, I shouldn't even talk because the line's been the line's been short the last couple of years, so I shouldn't even say anything. But oh, 
they, that's that's always a fun day. Um, I brought my wife along uh, last year, not this year, and she got a kick out of seeing all the vinyl nuts lined up waiting for the records. Oh yeah, it's amazing. The line gets longer every year, and um, our, our half hour has come to an end. But I really want to thank you for calling in, Tom, from New York, and talking about um, your contributions to the Association for Recorded Sound Collections discussion. Um, that was founded in 1966, and also about your uh, Dawn of Digital Recording article. It was very interesting to hear, and I'm really excited to continue the conversations um, online, and thank you so much. Yeah, no problem, Zeba. This was a lot of fun. Nice talking with you. Nice talking with you. Have a good day. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. That there was Tom Fine calling in from New York and here on Our Digital Future with me, Busy Thursdays, 8.30 a.m. to 9 a.m. Pacific Time here from the University of California in Irvine. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for next week. Very special audiovisual archivist guest from the Library of Congress. Thank you.